So there's a button on my microphone, and uh, thanks for graciously listening while I quietly read the word. And I was thinking this morning, um, a Baptist preacher in a Presbyterian pulpit is evidence that the kingdom is advancing and the prayer of Jesus for unity is being answered. <laughs> it is a great privilege and honor and joy to be here with you today. Um, my family and I have enjoyed worshiping here a couple of times throughout this season of transition as the Lord has uh, been calling me away from the church where I've served for 13 years. And uh, the end is, is coming into sight for where he's calling me, though it is not certain yet. But to be here this morning with you is a great, uh, a great privilege along the way. Well, we're on the cusp of the Advent season, which is my favorite time of year. It's a time in the church calendar for us to focus especially on the promises and fulfillment of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So the eternal Son of God becoming man so that he could live a perfect life in our stead and die the death that we deserve and rise from the dead. This is the essence of the gospel. And without those things, without the incarnation leading to those things, the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus, there is no salvation, not for a single soul. And as St. Andrews makes her way through Genesis, we come this morning to a text that is vital to that story of redemption. Now that story, the story of redemption, began in eternity as the Father and Son covenant together that the Son would come in time to redeem a people for their, from their sins. And all of this plays out as Christ is the promised Savior when Adam and Eve sin in the garden. As you will remember back to Genesis 3.15, the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent is the first promise of the gospel. And the faithful ever since that time looked for the promised son. And so when Eve has Cain, she says, I have gotten a man thinking, is this the one? And we see with the murder of his brother Abel, no, this is not the one. Maybe it's Seth, who's made in the image of Adam, but it's not him. Noah, he will deliver us from our suffering. No, he's drunk in the vineyard. But maybe Abraham. Abraham, perhaps he is the one that the story focuses on. And while indeed Abraham is the recipient of an amazing covenant from God and becomes God's friend, we are told, we know from how the story unfolds that it's not Abraham for all that he had going for him, he had some pretty big flaws. Now, God promised him that he would be the father of a chosen nation, that he would be a blessing, and that through his line, all the families of the earth would be blessed. This is the Abrahamic covenant, which we see beginning in chapter 12 and continuing to be enfleshed in the chapters that follow, including in our chapter today. And so while Abraham isn't the promised seed, we see that he is the one through whom the promised seed would come to the very ends of the earth. The blessing of Jesus would be made known. And as that story unfolds in chapter 17, the focus narrows with the promise of a son from Sarah's womb who would be the forefather of the Redeemer to come. And this is the blessed backdrop to the scene we're focusing on today in chapter 18, verses 1 through 15 the title of which I'm calling, The Son Promises a Son. The Son Promises a Son. These verses hang on the Christ-centered flow of Genesis up to this point, and they carry the story forward, focused on Christ ultimately anticipating his coming 2,000 years later. This is a fitting precursor to Advent, as you'll see as we go through this text. And the way that we'll approach it is through three headings. 
First, we're going to see Christ's appearing in verse 1. And then in verses 2 through 8, we're going to see Abraham's hospitality. And finally, Sarah's disbelief and faith in verses 9 through 15. And as we see these things, we'll see the Lord both confronting and comforting Sarah. And not only her, but I believe that he will confront and comfort us as we work our way through this text and hear what God says. And the point of all this is that true faith trusts in the Christ of the covenant, no matter how dire the circumstances. And I don't know what circumstances are being represented here this morning, what secret sorrows you bear, what joys, trials, and tribulations, but I know this, that true faith looks to the Christ of the covenant, no matter how dire the circumstances. And so let's begin by looking at Christ's appearing in verse 1, where we see something remarkable. The Lord appears to Abraham. Now, this is something that we as readers know, but Abraham doesn't yet know. Okay, we know the Lord appears to Abraham, we're told, by Moses here in verse 1. And this isn't the first time that the Lord has appeared, but it's the first time we see him appear in a particular way. We're told that he appears as a man. Now, we don't know exactly what appearings have looked like before to Abraham from chapters 12 through 17, but here we know that God appears at a specific place in visible form. Abraham is camped near the groves uh, that belong to Mamre, which is at a place called Hebron. Hebron, which becomes an important place in the story, it's where Sarah is going to be uh, buried after she dies. Isaac is going to live there for a time. Caleb, in the time of uh, the conquest in Joshua, receives an inheritance that includes Hebron, and it's also the city where the great King David is going to reign for the first several years of his kingdom. And God appears to Abraham there. The appearing of God, something theologians refer to as a theophany, God appearing. And this theophany is unique because it's the first time we're specifically told that God appears in the form of a man, okay, with two angels who are with him, which Abraham looks up and sees as three visitors, not yet understanding the significance of it. But we have to pause and ask, what do we know about God? What do we know about God from the fullness of Scripture? Well, we know that whatever else is true about God, that there is only one God. The Scriptures couldn't be any more clear about this. It was at the heart of the Jewish faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. And we continue to read in Scripture, and we see also that this one God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while each person of that divine Godhead is equal in majesty, glory, authority, and perfection, when it comes to redemption, to how God works in time for our salvation, each person of the Trinity has a specific role which is fitting to his person. And we see this all throughout. The Father creates, ordains, decrees, directs, and sends The Son is the one through whom creation happens, who is sent by the Father into the world, and He alone, Christ alone, is uniquely suited to take on human nature for our redemption. The Father does not become man, nor does the Spirit. The Father doesn't die on the cross. The Spirit doesn't die on the cross. It is the Son. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and He carries out God's will in the world and applies the redeeming work of Christ to the people that Christ came to save. 
We ourselves gathered here today as the church are evidence of that. The Spirit has called us out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus. And focusing on Jesus, we see his unique suitedness to becoming man in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, where Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, this is important for helping us understand what we're seeing here in verse 1 when the Lord appears to Abraham. Whenever we're told that God appears in visible form, we need to think whole Bible and understand that it is an appearance of God the Son, which is specifically a type of theophany called a Christophany, the appearing of Christ before his incarnation in a temporary but very real human body for a specific purpose, which in our story today is to declare the promise of a son to Abraham and Sarah. Perhaps... Jesus had this very scene in mind when he shocked the Jewish hearers he spoke to in John 8. He said to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and yet have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And this brings us to our second heading Abraham's hospitality in verses 2 through 8. So Abraham is resting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And in the climate, 20 miles south of Jerusalem in the springtime or summer, that's exactly what we'd expect him to be doing. It's exactly what Craig and I would do, except we would be taking a nap. And Abraham's sitting there, and he looks up, and he sees three men walking toward him. And immediately, get this, the 99-year-old Abraham springs up. We don't see him complaining of knee pain, and he runs to meet these three visitors. That in itself is amazing. And the first thing Abraham does in verse two is bow down before them. Now, knowing what we do about who these visitors are, and specifically the Lord, we might assume that Abraham recognizes the Lord. He's familiar with God. He is his friend. And that that's the reason he bows down. But I don't think that's what's going on. And here's why. Hebrews 13, 2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, the author of Hebrews, I'm certain, has this scene with Abraham in mind, and he says that Abraham was unaware that his visitors were heavenly, much less that one of them was divine. And when Abraham bows down and calls the prominent one Lord, he's, doing, uh, he's showing us exemplary Middle Eastern hospitality and honor to his honored guests. That's what's going on. He's not necessarily worshiping or calling one of them God. Now, by the end of chapter 18, he's going to know who his visitors are. But Abraham bows down because he is a godly man who's acting in a godly way toward these strangers in stark contrast to the way that the people of Sodom in the next chapter are going to respond to these same visitors as the two angels go into that town and are treated with hostility. Abraham, the friend of God, shows exemplary hospitality. And then in verses three through eight, we see him preparing a great feast. And so he's eager to show kindness to these strangers. He begs them to pause from their journey, to rest and be served a meal at Abraham's tent. 
And so in verse five, as soon as the visitors give the word and, and their permission, they agree to eat with him, Abraham springs into action in a way that puts every restaurant manager, server, and chef to shame. And I served for five years at an Olive Garden in Portland, and I can tell you that the 99-year-old Abraham puts the 20-year-old Rick to shame in the way that he responds. Abraham orchestrates a feast on a dime, and not just any feast, a lavish feast. He tells his wife to make three seahs worth of bread, which, to put that in perspective, is anywhere from seven to 22 quarts of flour. And that's, that is more bread than even I can appreciate. And I am self-described as a, car, a carbivore. And there's three types of people, herbivores, carnivores, and carbivores, and that one's me. This is a big pile of small, unleavened cakes of bread that were baked on hot stones. And they were able to be cooked up very quickly, and with the finest flour, it's set before our guests. And as if the bread feast weren't enough, Abraham takes the best calf and has one of his servants slaughter and prepare it. So not only the best bread, but the best cakes. And then we're told in verse 8, the best cream to top it off. And so you have your three most important food groups, bread, meat, and dairy, which if I'm understanding this theologically, is meant to be a sanction on cheeseburgers without the false guilt. Okay? This is truly a fine feast whipped up by a man given to hospitality. And two things are noteworthy in verse 8. And I'll read that verse. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. First, Abraham stands by as Christ and the angels eat. And this shows us something remarkable about the man who has been specially chosen by God to receive his covenant and be his friend. Being the great man that he knew he was, he yet served with meekness as his guests ate. And this points us forward to the hospitality of his promised descendant, Jesus Christ, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the second thing to note is the fact that Christ and his angels are actually eating here. And this cuts away any idea that they're just apparitions, that they're just, um, they look like, you know, they're physical, but they're not. It's, they're just ghosts of some kind. That's not what's going on. Whatever else is going on in this theophany, we can see that God and the angels here actually took on temporary but real human bodies and ate. Now, this is a miracle, obviously, and it's out of the ordinary. But we have here a foreshadowing of our Savior's miraculous incarnation as he comes to announce the miraculous birth of his forefather, as pertains to the flesh, Isaac. The son announces a son. Now, not all mealtime conversation is riveting, as anyone who sat with toddlers knows. But we have here a truly jaw-dropping dinner table conversation, which leads us to focus on verses 9 through 15 and Sarah's disbelief and faith. Now, presumably during the meal, the visitors ask Abraham where Sarah is. Now, as the God-appointed overseer of the home, she was in the tent, as Abraham points out. And having brought up Sarah, we see a divine prophecy from Christ in verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So in about a year, he's saying that Sarah will have a baby boy. Now on the face of it, a casual reader wouldn't think there's anything odd going on. I mean, women have kids all the time, right? 
But in verse 11, Moses writes a comment to show show us that this is anything but an ordinary birth. Moses shows us it's miraculous and physically impossible. He says, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And we think, well, how old are we talking? I mean, Picasso had a kid late into his, his life. But he says, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. To say that the 89-year-old Sarah was postmenopausal is an understatement. She couldn't have kids anymore. That door had closed, the ship had sailed, as one old commentator put it. Her monthly visitors had stopped visiting. <laughs> and this helps us understand Sarah's disbelief in verse 12. She was well aware of the promises of the covenant that God gave to her husband earlier, but she had given up all hope that those promises would come to pass. She knew God's word, but she struggled to believe it. She struggled to believe it. Now, there's no indication here that Sarah knows yet that she's listening to God himself. But what she heard is entirely consistent with what God had already revealed in chapter 17. The only new information we get here is the timing of Isaac's birth. So when Sarah hears the prophecy that she would have a baby in a year, she laughed to herself. Now, to be fair, Abraham also laughs at the same news in chapter 17, but there's a crucial difference between their two laughs. Abraham's laugh is a laugh of faith, belief, and joy. Sarah's laugh is a laugh of contempt, bitterness, pain, and disbelief. To be barren in the ancient Near East was seen universally as a curse. Sarah had come to terms with it, and it was deeply painful. When she hears the words of Christ here, that wound is reopened afresh for her. She's not laughing because she's joyful. She's laughing because it hurt. She didn't believe what she was hearing, not for a moment. In verse 13, though, she starts to realize that her guests aren't just ordinary travelers. This isn't just uh, an inconsiderate man touching on a nerve. This is a divine guest, and she realizes that even though she laughed to herself and thought nobody heard her, she was hiding behind the door of the tent, remember, yet... One of these guests was omniscient. He knew exactly what was going on in the thoughts of her heart. He knew what she was thinking, and he asks Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Now, you can bet that he had Sarah's attention at this point. She wasn't laughing anymore. She'd been caught. Now, put yourself in that situation, what, it, what would you be tempted to say if you caught someone scorning and disbelieving something you promised as a blessing to them? I know that in my offense, I'd be tempted to say, fine, don't believe me, I'll take my blessing and be on my merry way. I'll give it to someone who's a little more thankful. But that's not what God does. It's not what God does. This is where we see him both confronting and comforting Sarah, and he does it Now, this is crucial. He does it by reminding her of who he is. He does it by reminding her of who he is. And summarizing one of the most important lessons in Scripture, he says that nothing is too hard for God. And friends, I'm going to just pause and say, if it was true back then, it's true today because God doesn't change. Nothing is too hard for God. Perhaps somebody needs to remember that right now. He is the covenant-keeping, miracle-working God. 
The Lord had made a covenant with Abraham promising that a miraculous baby boy would be born to two ancient parents who couldn't have kids. And this miraculous birth would be an important link along that chain of redemption starting in the Garden of Eden all the way to the miraculous birth of the one who was foreshadowed by Isaac. And he was the very God who was speaking with Abraham and Sarah, who in 2,000 years would don human flesh one final time in a way he hadn't before to stand as our Redeemer, the God-man forever and ever. But Sarah couldn't see all that. She wouldn't see all that, not until she was confronted. All she could see was her bitterness and disappointment that she couldn't have children. And by looking to her dire circumstances, instead of her savior, all she could do is laugh in disbelief. And then she added sin to sin by lying to God about it, denying that she had laughed at all. And in a gracious rebuke, Christ says to her simply, no, but you did laugh. He calls her on her stuff. And he does it to expose her heart and to draw her in by his grace. The same way that he exposes our sin to draw us to himself. Like David said, I love it, we do not confess into guilt. We do not confess into shame. We confess into grace. And that's right here what's going on in this story. Do you see God's tenderness as Jesus says, no, but you did laugh. He doesn't berate her. He doesn't chastise her for spilling the milk. He doesn't get down in her face and scream. He says, no, but you did laugh. His tenderness drawing her in. And you know what? The confrontation had its intended effect. Sarah believed. Now, how do we know? I mean, it doesn't say anything about her response after that. It just goes on to the next scene. But you know, Hebrews 11 does say something about her response. In Hebrews 11, we have a catalog of heroes of the faith set forward as an example for us about what it means to walk by faith through this world of shadow. And Sarah, in verse 11, it says, By faith, Sarah received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Friends, isn't that beautiful? Sarah's disbelief, embellished with a lie, wasn't the end of her story. God drew her in by grace. He was merciful, and she becomes a shining example of faith for all God's people in the generations to come. As we come to the end of our time in this passage, I'd like to ask you about your faith. You see, God puts before us two responses to his word and promises. One is belief, and the other is disbelief. That's the story, uh, Sarah's story, going from disbelief to belief, from a lack of faith to faith. That's the story of every one of us who is in Christ, friends. As we were born in deadness of our trespasses and sins, not believing in God and scorning him, and yet being drawn by the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus to have faith in the gospel. That's our story. But that doesn't mean that along the way, it's necessarily easy to live by faith, even after we've been made new. Can we not each of us attest to the fact that life is hard? And sometimes, even though we know how eternity is going to turn out for us, we struggle sometimes now to believe the gospel. We struggle to believe the promises of God. And so I'd like you to examine your faith, and I'm going to leave you with three aspects of faith that we see in this passage. 
Consider with me, if you would, how these aspects of faith are playing out in your own life. And the first aspect of faith is faith's foundation, faith's foundation, which are the covenant promises of God in Christ. See, all true faith is grounded in the sure word of God. It was the word that Abraham believed. It was the word Sarah was struggling to believe, but would believe, and specifically the promise of the gospel. See, for Abraham and Sarah, the promise of a son in their old age pointed forward to the eternal son who would come to save us from our sins. That covenant made with Abraham pointed forward and anticipated and even called for the new covenant that Christ would effect in his death through the shedding of his own blood. What we're going to celebrate this morning as we take the Lord's Supper together. This is our hope. Faith's foundation is Christ in the gospel. It is a foundation that is unshakable, never changing, and always sure. Is your life built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ? I would ask, have you trusted in him personally as your salvation? Or are you trying to go it your way, hoping that it'll work out? See, Abraham, in the days where he struggled to believe God's promise, went about it his own way. He had a son with his servant, and it did not go well. But with Christ, it will be well with your soul, as it would be with Abraham. The second aspect of true faith we see is faith's obedience. Wherever we open in scripture and read about faith, we read about an obedient faith. You can't read anything in the Bible about faith without realizing that genuine faith works itself out in obedience to God. But where do we see that in Genesis 18? Well, I'd suggest there are two ways that we see it, and we need the New Testament writers to flesh them out for us. The first I've already alluded to in Hebrew, reading Hebrews 13:2, which is hospitality. Abraham shows hospitality to strangers because he was a friend of God. Abraham was righteous, but not because he wasn't sinful. You've already seen up through Genesis 17 how Abraham deals with quite a bit of sin in his own life. No, he is righteous because he believed God. And that faith was worked out through hospitality when the pagans down the road in Sodom were going to meet these strangers with hostility. Obedient faith is a hospitable faith. And the way that we open our homes and lives to one another and to strangers is an evidence of a vibrant faith in Christ. And the second way we see faith working itself out in obedience here is more subtle, which is the godly submission of a wife to her husband. Now, focusing in on one word in verse 12, when Sarah refers in passing to Abraham as her Lord, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3 that this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, never is it suggested that, wives, you should call your husband's Lord or master. In fact, ladies, if your husband ever asks you to do that, just give him a holy laugh and then go do your thing. Okay, that's, that's not the point. The point is that Sarah had a posture of love and submission to her husband. And wives, know that how you live with your husbands has the potential to be a powerful testament to your faith in Christ. Because marriage has always been between two people who are equal in worth and honor. 
But the way that Christian husbands and Christian wives express that honor is different. And all of that is designed by God specifically to tell the story of the gospel, the redeeming love of a savior for his church, the bride who responds in joy to him. And when a wife honors her husband and follows his lead, except in sin, she adorns her faith in a, in, and exalts the wisdom and the goodness of Christ in a way that our, our culture simply can't fathom and desperately needs. It's glorious, and it's God-glorifying. Friends, faith's foundation is the gospel. It expresses itself in obedience, and its focus is Christ. That's what we see here. Faith's focus is Christ, the final aspect of faith. When Sarah was looking at her circumstances instead of her Savior, she faltered. She went so far as to call God a liar and then to lie to God's face. But when she turned her eyes upon Jesus and looked full in his wonderful face, then the postmenopausal barrenness of earth grew strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And his promise was fulfilled in the promised son a year later. A promised son that pointed forward to the ultimate promised son who came to take away the sins of the world. And that's the point, friends. True faith trusts in the Christ of the covenant, no matter how dire the circumstances. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord God, we are grateful and praise you for the very real, very human, very frail, and very divine faith of Sarah and Abraham that you worked out in them because you loved them. We praise you for your tenderness shown in this passage, a tenderness that sometimes we struggle to believe and that we ourselves need every day. We thank you for not treating us as our sins deserve, but for speaking to us in your tender mercy through Christ. Your mercies, Lord, we know are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It is a, a great joy at this point in redemption history to look back on this scene and to know how that story pans out, to know that ultimately, Jesus, you would come 2,000 years later to bring all of this to its completion for all the promises of God are yes and amen in you. And so this morning, as each one of us are where you have divinely placed us in your providence, help us to believe in your same goodness that Sarah and Abraham believed in, to trust in your same promises that they themselves were called to believe in, to know that whatever the future holds, you work all things together for the good of your children, for your glory and for our joy. And it is for that joy and that glory that we now pray. Strengthen our faith, and now as we come to the table, blessed be your name. Amen.